Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase. All the while, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockford. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today we're joined by Matthew Plavin of Arcadia Biosciences, who was appointed President and Chief Executive Officer in September 2019. He joined Arcadia as Chief Financial Officer in 2016 and also served as President of Arcadia Specialty Genomics, a strategic business unit delivering innovations in hemp. Prior to joining Arcadia, Matt served as CEO and board member of Seska Therapeutics and COO of Thermogenesis Corp. He also led the finances as CFO of two high-tech private equity-backed companies, positioning each for successful exits. Prior to that, he had executive and senior management tenures at both McKesson and Ernst & Young. Matt is a CPA and earned a bachelor's degree in business economics from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Matt, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Jonathan, thank you. Happy to be here. Matt, welcome. I'm always fascinated by the trajectories that lead our guests to where they are currently. And that is particularly the case when we have guests such as yourself that are doing things that are very different from from what we're doing. Please tell us a little bit more about how is it that you got to this point in your career? Well, I think Jonathan did a good job of kind of laying out at a high level, you know, the, the, the major steps of my career. But when I think back to how I got started and, and what my greatest influences were, I think about starting out as a public accountant in uh, Los Angeles, and I had a number of very interesting clients in the entertainment and sports uh, sectors. And for, for example, uh, the LA Dodgers, I had the good fortune of being able to audit the Dodgers when they won the pennant in 89. And I also had uh, interesting clients like uh, 20th Century Fox was able to audit, you know, certain movies that Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and Tom Hanks were in. And so although I was an accountant and getting a really good feel for, you know, business fundamentals across many different sectors. You know, what I was also learning was I I really liked variety um, um, and being entrepreneurial, which you don't tend to associate with accounting and accountants. So it was kind of the best of both worlds, learn how businesses operate from the inside out, uh, but also develop uh, an appetite for uh, you know, variety and, and, um, and, and working with people um, and, and understanding what it takes to make businesses in general thrive. And so that set me on a trajectory to, although I entered into the private sector uh, as, a, as a controller for a company that ultimately became part of, uh, you know, a $100 billion company, McKesson, 
it, it you know, because of that uh, formation that I just described, you know, I really sought out opportunities to, to get into uh, general management and leadership positions pretty early on in my career. Um, and, you know, uh, found myself um, really gravitating towards um, bringing uh, novel ideas uh, to, 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 to fruition, you know, from early stages of strategy development and um, concept uh, testing to actual uh, funding of a, a, a new business, bringing people together to, to effectively bring that idea alive and, and, and create a, you know, a, a thriving business and a return for, for those who took the risk to invest in, in, in those ideas. And so that's really what led me to um, these kind of leadership and executive positions in what I would describe as breakthrough and disruptive technologies, which is what I've been doing the last 20 years. But, you know, it, it really call, it calls uh, on you to, to, to reach in and, and, and um, really, um, you know, draw from everything you have to, um, to, 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 to bring a, a concept like that to fruition, which is the most challenging and rewarding way to, uh, uh, to live a career. And, and, I, and I guess that's, that's what I think of when, when you ask, um, you know, what, what led me down the winding road to where I am now. I almost chuckled. I mean, I did chuckle, but I was muted, so you couldn't hear me chuckle when you started talking about uh, CPAs uh, and entrepreneurship in the same sentence, right? Because it's kind of like lawyers. It, it takes a very special breed of lawyer and CPA to even know the word entrepreneurship and then to be comfortable dealing in that space, right? I mean, that, that's why they gravitate toward law and toward accounting is because lawyers like to like to manage risk and mitigate risk and very often are not the ones comfortable taking the risk. And I would say CPAs often fit into that same boat where you, they want to be in their comfortable boxes where things fit perfectly in accounting balance left and right. And, uh, it, and it makes sense, you know, even just hearing you talk about uh, how you've gravitated away from the more traditional role into something where you're more comfortable being in the limelight. Yeah, and although traditionally I would say, you know, that is absolutely true that accountants have a reputation, a generalization of being fairly binary and whatnot. But I will say that in the last 20 to 25, 30 years, I think there's been a, a recognition that that no longer is a, uh, a mentality that is going to lead you to success in, in global economics today. And you, you see a lot of, you probably see a lot of literature, both for accountants and lawyers that that um, reflect how the industry is looking to change that persona and is looking for people uh, with the characteristics that we're talking about now um, and, and actually looking for a sea change in how uh, these, these two professions have been historically viewed. And, and I think we're getting there. You know, I, I, do, I do think that um, we're starting to see a, a crossover of... Um, um, you know, part of it's the way we, we communicate today through digital media and such. It's, it's much more, um, you know, you, you're, you're on, you're on camera most of the time, one way or the other. Um, and so, um, being, being more, uh, you know, not just so binary and, uh, locked away with a green visor, but, but really, um, uh, participating as a business person first and perhaps a, a lawyer or accountant second. 
So Matt, Arcadia is doing some very interesting work uh, in in a range of uh, business areas. Could you tell us some of the most notable things that you're doing right now? Yes, uh, it's a pretty exciting time for us. I mean, we have spent uh, the past 18 years and $200 million developing uh, technologies that improve crops uh, for farmers as well as crops for consumers. So making uh, broad acre crops more productive for those who grow them and then making the nutritional content um, uh, of, of the crops themselves and the ingredients that we that we derive from them um, more, more uh, favorable for consumers in, in terms of health uh, primarily. So we have brought three new products to the market for wheat. And um, wheat is a, is a crop that has been bred probably for the last 75 years primarily to improve the productivity. Um, and I think one of the things most notable that has, has really not been uh, a focus is improving the nutrition intrinsic to the wheat. And that's what we've done. We've, we've improved the fiber content while at the same time reducing the allergenicity uh, for, for glutenins, two very important uh, areas of focus for consumers. And so we launched in 2018 into the market uh, a brand that we call Good Wheat. And we're in the process now of scaling into the market in 2021 through e-commerce, a direct-to-consumer brand called Three Farm Daughters, which we're really excited about, which we think is highly differentiated. Um, and we're introducing that wheat product through a pasta and flour uh, product line. And so, um, you know, the target audience are consumers who um, want, um, you know, nutrition-dense pasta and, and flour with uh, fewer calories and um, significantly reduced glutenins for those who are gluten-sensitive. And because of the underlying technology that we have embedded, we're able to put these out with very uh, clean, what we call clean labels. You know, consumers, 90% of consumers will tell you if they don't understand a word in the ingredients, they start to distrust what it is that they're, they're buying. So they want to be able to read a label, an, an ingredient label, and understand everything that's on it. So in our wheat, we base our pasta, we basically have wheat and uh and water and flour and and so um, very simple clean labels um, intended to you know provide a a, uh, a transparent experience with unparalleled nutrition so that's a really important launch for us in 2020 we're taking it into retail as well as e-commerce um, and then the other area that's really important for us this this year is the um, the success of our good hemp business and that has been a focus for us in the last two years to bring the improvements in agronomics to hemp that, that uh, you know, broad acre crops like wheat, corn, and rice have experienced over the past 30 years, but hemp has not. And so um, two, two aspects, we're bringing um, high quality, um, genetically stable, genetically superior hemp seeds to farmers. And we have an operation in Hawaii. It's a joint venture called Archipelago Ventures, where we're cultivating Hawaiian hemp um, with the objective of bringing a premium Hawaiian sun-grown 
CBD to the market in the mainland in 2021. We believe that that will be the only premium Hawaiian CBD available when we do that. So these are two major commercial initiatives for a company that has spent most of its history, you know, as a biotech company developing these traits. So in a way, you could say that we're in the midst of a pretty significant pivot from R&D to add a sales and, and, and commercialization uh, component to our business. And so we have high expectations for um, the, these products being introduced to the market and the resulting revenue that they will generate. So it's great that you mentioned hemp. Uh, Fred and I in our law firm, we've, we've been doing cannabis work for the last decade. And so certainly we've been tracking the marijuana markets on the West Coast and, and elsewhere. And then, uh, and then hemp uh, being pulled out from the definition of marijuana on the 2018 Farm Bill. So we're certainly well aware of uh, the industry developments, but it's really great to hear your perspective on how hemp is moving more into the mainstream of, uh, of crops and then how we're going to bring you know, good science to, to the hemp crop. So we'd love to have you talk a little bit more about cannabis. I mean, you're in uh, companies based in California. So we know that marijuana is a big deal there too, as well as hemp, because California is such a, uh, an agricultural powerhouse. So can you tell us what you're seeing in terms of developments in, in those markets that might be interesting for our listeners? Um, that's a big topic. Um, I'll start with the fact that we are a publicly traded company. And as a result, we've entered the cannabis space focused on hemp, because as you mentioned, the 2018 Farm Bill provided the federal legal pathway for us to enter this market. Um, As a biotech company, we view hemp as the greatest opportunity in uh, genetics in 75 years for agriculture. Um, When you think about the two green revolutions, the Borlaug revolution of the 70s, where chemicals and mechanization was brought to farming, plus the biotech revolution in the 90s where we we introduced advanced breeding and gene editing, we've improved the yield of all major row crops phenomenally. I mean, you think about um, corn in 1938, you would get 45 bushels of corn an acre. Today, in many places, you'll get 180 bushels an acre. Phenomenal improvements. Um, hemp has experienced none of that because it's been largely illegal, um, prohibited, you know, in most areas of the world. So what we have is a, a, a plant, a cannabis, that has phenomenal medicinal health uh, uh, prospects as well as industrial applications, fiber and, and, and so on. And, and you have so much potential in a crop that has a very poor genetics. And so for us as a biotech company, this is thrilling. Um, we see opportunities to, to bring value through the stabilization of genetics as uh, a, a major opportunity for value creation, given our, our experience and our, and our proven track record in transforming crops. So as a high-level overview of hemp, we're, we're thrilled that uh, hemp has been legalized through the USDA Farm Bill. Uh, then if we look at uh, the original intent till now, um, we see quite quite a a challenging scenario or a challenging history so far in that uh, the USDA and the spirit of what they were doing was to legalize hemp um, and the production of hemp extracts 
um, what they did was defer to the FDA to, to follow through with developing a regulatory framework. And as many know, that has not occurred for a number of reasons. And in fact, I would say that between federal, state, and local agencies, the the pronouncements, I don't know quite what to call them because they're not law per se, but the regulatory um, environment is very confusing for growers and processors. And in fact, recently the, the DEA uh, put out an interim final rule, which indicated that during the production of CBD, for example, if you're sourcing from hemp and under a, either an industrial pilot program like the one in Hawaii or under a state program, they indicated that any instance where you have produced a THC level greater than 0.3%, that you, you could be in possession or you would be in possession of a controlled substance. So there's a lot of confusion that's been introduced into the market um, in the absence of clear guidelines from the FDA. And, and there's been a lot of frustration in the legislatures, state and federal. And so we have a crop that has tremendous potential, but has been embroiled in you know, a, a regulatory uh, snafu the last uh, two years. And so that has had implications on the development of the CBD market, for example, um, and, and other markets that uh, everyone has high expectations and hopes for with regard to hemp and hemp extracts. And so for Arcadia, having entered the space as a seed seller and, and, and a genetics innovator, uh, we too have felt the headwinds and the challenges associated with not having a regulatory framework put in place. So there's been a lot of positive development in that you know we do have the farm bill and, and, and we do have certain avenues in which we, we can begin to cultivate and process, but it has not unfolded at the pace and become the market that the analysts originally expected and foretold in 2018 when the Farm Bill was initially passed. And so what we've done is we've really tried our best to navigate the labyrinth, if you will, as state and local authorities have put in place either pilot programs until the FDA comes out with a framework or where we've been able to decipher uh, that we can operate legally as a public company and not be in violation of federal, state, and local laws. It has slowed things well beyond what we have expected. And we've been, as a public company, we've kind of tried to bring our shareholders and um, uh, stakeholders along with us as we've navigated through this, this difficult unfolding of, of regulatory you know, requirements. But I would say where we stand today, we feel very good that we have identified a pathway in working with folks like yourself who are also trying to understand these evolving laws and regulations. As I mentioned earlier, we are well positioned to continue with our cultivation in Hawaii and do our processing in the mainland and be able to bring to market, you know, a CBD that will target topical applications because those are the ones that the FDA to date has not taken a negative view of, so to speak. Anything that is CBD that is ingested is where the FDA will say until they establish what the regulatory framework is that claims and marketing a CBD uh, is a very risky proposition if you're going to be marketing to consumers 
as a food or food additive. So we've stayed on the right side of that line and made sure that as we um, anticipate bringing our, our Hawaiian CBD to market, that it is um, an ingredient in a topical or cosmetic. So we feel like we've done a pretty good job of understanding and keeping ourselves legal at a time where that is a confusing and unclear definition for those who are who are trying to bring hemp extracts to the market. It's been a blessing and a challenge at the same time. We really do continue to believe that this is going to be CBD and hemp extracts, um, whether it's CBD, CBG, or other cannabinoids or other uh, applications is going to be a very big market. It's just a matter of um, um, sustaining and um, surviving through the, the growing pains of, of such a uh, dynamic new market. Matt, it's interesting how you talk about the hemp crop being the biggest opportunity in 75 years. As a business lawyer, that's exactly how we describe what's going on with the marijuana and hemp industries as well. Because, uh, you know, five, 10 years ago, we hadn't had a new innovation in, in the way business law was dealt with and new, you know, kind of regulations that really laws and regulations that really changed the way we fundamentally think about how business can be done. And we were left as lawyers with a lot of the complexity and a lot of the nuances of trying to figure out, well, can we be disbarred for this kind of advice? Can, will the, uh, you know, can we be arrested? Will our assets be seized? You know, these are the kinds of, of analyses that we went through as well as advisors to the industry and uh, it's been a wild ride. It's been challenging and fun at the same time, like you said, where there are lots of opportunities, but also uh, you can't you can't just chart a course and march forward. You have to chart a course and check every step along the way. Yes, uh, couldn't have said it better myself. And there aren't many law firms who have weighed in and taken that risk. Um, and we've been fortunate um, to find some good advisors who have as you're talking about, stayed on point with um, these laws and, and regulations as they evolve and helped us to decipher areas that really, even in the pronouncements, were not clear. For example, the DEA IFR. When that came out, everybody in the space that, that we knew, and, and, and I think it was generally agreed that everybody had to take a pause um, because at first blush, it sounded like a recriminalization of hemp. And after we had a, some, an opportunity to digest and after um, the comment period uh, ran its course and there was some, you know, a little bit of dialogue, um, I think we all got a little more comfortable with uh, how, you know, what the intent of the IFR was or is and how to adjust accordingly to uh, stay in the game. And that's really what it's been about. I think it's going to be good for everyone, ultimately, to get the FDA in to regulate um, CBD in particular, and, and really open up this, this opportunity for what it can and, and should be. And really, every country is going through this as well. Fred and I were talking this week, I think it was at Panama, Fred, you were looking at the new regulations? Ecuador. Ecuador. Why don't you fill everyone in? Because I think it's fascinating what your your commentary after looking at the Ecuador laws that are that are coming down the pike. Yeah, sure. One of the things that that struck me the most, I don't know if this is what you're you're referring to, um, Jonathan, but 
one of the more, more most interesting aspects uh, about the the new regulations these are the the, the hemp regulations that were issued by the ministry of agriculture is th they draw this distinction between what they call hemp and industrial hemp and first of all it's not very clearly defined but you can more or less figure out what the, what they're trying to what they're trying to do which is separate um the the kind of products that basically consumer products such as oils and and, and beverages and that sort of stuff and then the 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 fiber uh production and all that but but the but the definitions are not altogether that clear there's definitely potential for some gray area uh products that that might not be that that clearly distinguishable and of course for 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 those of us who work with hemp laws elsewhere you know where the, where the term industrial hemp can pretty much encompass all of those products that was a really yeah kind of kind of interesting and as a i look at some of the regulations and laws in other countries in south america you do see these these issues come up i, I remember uh, a few months ago, I was looking at a different piece of legislation. I forget which country, but it, it was not clear from from looking at the the legislation. I mean, they, they they specified what happened if the product had more than one percent THC, and what would happen if it had less. But there was no specific provision for products that had exactly one percent and of course as lawyers that's the sort of thing we pick up on right like well this is you know <laughs> they're there who knows we, we we might have to deal with the with the situation where it's exactly at one percent and i spoke about about this with with a colleague from from mexico we you know we were really trying to figure out if there was something here you know maybe maybe it was sort of implied under that country's own own law you know that that you know if, if you don't specify then it's by default you know it'll be treated as if it has more or less but in the end you know we just have to conclude that it was bad drafting and i think that it, it's a combination in part uh, of a lack of understanding in some cases of of the the issues uh and the concepts and because um, you do see some pretty wacky things in terms of, of of the provisions and then at the same time in some cases maybe not the best drafting so obviously at the national level if you're talking about a bill introduced in the country's legislature it'll probably be well drafted but of course once you get down to a ministerial level then maybe whoever is tasked with drafting this might not have the the, the necessary experience to come out with a with a clear product. So some interesting things that we're seeing for sure. Yeah, I was just going to add something to that. We have a lot of business to business relationships, partnerships globally. And um, of course, looking to, you know, take our innovations uh, to other countries is one of our areas of focus. And um, we have one particular partner in, in South America, BioSeries. We just completed a transaction with them over the summer. We had, uh, as partners, developed a drought-tolerant soybean, and uh, we sold our our interest in that joint venture to them over the, the I guess it was in the fall, um, because we had completed all of the development, and it was time to commercialize, and they're very well positioned to do that. And so we, in exchange for a fair amount of cash and uh, shares and bio series, we sold that to them, and we're watching with great anticipation 
the introduction of that soybean globally. Um, but of course, as strategic partners and having worked with them for as long as we, we have, uh, as we got into hemp, we wanted to think um, more, you know, think globally. And, um, you know, to the point, the points made earlier in this conversation, trying to get a bead on the level of adoption and what the potential barriers are to that adoption by country is pretty fascinating. And in South America, I'd gone through and kind of tallied up where each of these countries stood over the summer as we were, we were looking at ways to partner um, in bringing our innovations to South America. And it is interesting, um, not unlike my own personal experience with um, cannabis, uh, when, when um, partners of ours three years ago came to us and said, you really should think about taking your, your experience and uh, adopting hemp as, as, as a project and a potential market. I, I was still back, um, you know, with Nancy Reagan, say no to drugs. I, I, I knew nothing about cannabis other than it was really bad. And it didn't take long for me to understand once I began to get educated that, you know, uh, maybe that wasn't the right characterization of cannabis all along and appropriately um, regulated, uh, there was tremendous potential in this plant and that I had no idea that um, cannabis and hemp were the same species. It's the same plant. And as I got more well-educated, I became very enthusiastic, very quick about the potential of hemp um, and the cannabinoids in particular. Um, and so I think that's what we're seeing as countries around the world grapple with this issue, depending on their history and whether they've embraced you know, cannabis historically, and many, many countries have not. There is an education that's occurring at different paces, depending upon when there's an attempt to introduce it. But when I looked at the you know, eight or nine countries in South America, uh, generally, you had a, an interesting mix some countries, uh, and I wish I had the chart in front of me. I'd sound really smart if I had it, you know, off the top of my head. But um, several of the countries were still pretty much, it's a prohibition. We're not even talking about it or thinking about it. Um, all the way to they'd approved for medicinal and we're in the process of considering recreational. Nobody's that far along yet in South America, for example. But it was interesting to kind of set a baseline and then watch over time how it was evolving. And similar to what's going on in the U.S. is I really do think that as people, generally speaking, get more educated as to the potential, how robust those applications are, it, I think it's just a matter of time before it works its way through every country's regulatory process or legal process and that we, we end up with a fairly open cannabis market in five years. It really is just a, a process that um, needs to unfold um, naturally. And I, I do think that despite the challenges with, you know, the uh, transforming from a negative view of cannabis to, to a, uh, a more fact-based view is, is going to result in a broad and, and enormous market. But it's just it, it may be a little bit more of a, a journey than we had all originally thought, but I see uh, I see a global transformation occurring, 
and ultimately an adoption of cannabis at a very minimum as a you know, medicinal market. And in many areas of the world, it, it will be a recreational drug. I, I think it's fair to say that cannabis advocates tend to overstate the benefits of cannabis and downplay the risks. And what I mean by that is, if you pick up a pack of cigarettes, you know, because it's printed on the pack, that, that cigarettes cause cancer. If you get in a car and you've been drinking, you know the risk you're taking. And so I believe that the liberalization of cannabis has to come along with the appropriate social responsibility and accountability, the way we've brought a similar products to market, if you want to call it products, but, but, but alcohol, cigarettes, you know, it's very, very clear what the implications and the risks are. And I think we need to be forthright about that when it comes to chronic use of marijuana, for example. Again, Arcadia does not participate in marijuana. We won't until it is federally legal. Any of our innovations in hemp, we think, do transfer uh, nicely to marijuana. So I want to be clear, we're, we're not operating in that realm, but it's a major consideration because, again, I do think that we're going to find over time it will become legalized in many countries as a medicinal market and whether or not it becomes um, one that is uh, leisure or not, it remains to be seen. But to the extent that it is legalized and made available, we have got to be responsible and make sure that we are clear as to what the risks are and that it is is managed accordingly. Um, because um, when you compare it to other industries, alcohol and tobacco, for example, it lags behind, in my view anyway, as to the risks and benefits. And I think a lot more you know, clinical work needs to be done for cannabinoids as well as marijuana. And I think that's underway. But I think what we're going to find is it can't be legalized without supporting construct that is forthright and, and fact-based like we have with alcohol and tobacco. Let's talk more generally about the bioscience industry. Um, can you Share with us some of the major developments that that you are uh, observing um, when it comes to specific crops and products. Uh, are there any hubs that we should be that we should be aware of? What are some of the the places that are really making a name for themselves in the industry? Right. So, what comes to mind first and foremost for me is the is technology, and and um, we've seen a number of. Um, technologies come to the market that represent advanced breeding or gene editing and even GMO. And I think what we're seeing at the moment is a bit of a battle. And I, I don't think this is a surprise to anybody, a battle between what is perceived to be GMO and non-GMO. And it's highly politicized in my view. And it is something that's going to have to be worked out uh, in my view in the relatively near future, because there is a pretty significant anti-GMO contingent globally, and that is an issue in and of itself. I think that um, there are uh, a number of crops that would be classified as GMOs that are well established and embraced in many, many countries in the world. And then there are countries, um, Europe, for example, who are staunchly anti-GMO. When you look at new technologies coming to the market, uh, each country 
takes a view on whether that technology is going to be deemed GMO or non-GMO. And in the strictest sense, I mean, we, I would say at Arcadia Biosciences, we, we view transgenic as what would be GMO. So transgenic is taking a gene from one species or foreign DNA and uh, inserting a foreign DNA into a genome of another plant. And so there are other gene editing technologies coming to the market or they've been in the market like Talens and CRISPR that are a form of editing within a genome and not introducing foreign DNA. So these, these assessments um, have a, a significant impact on the ability of these technologies to affect the, uh, the efficiency of the, the food supply chain and, and uh, supply chain assurity, which are big issues in developing countries, in every country, but especially in developing countries. And so, you know, I think what is going to be interesting to continue to watch is analysts who predict in 2050, if we haven't adopted GMO in earnest, we won't be able to feed uh, the global population because of uh, reduction of farmable land and, and uh, global warming and uh, climate change, however it's proper to refer to it. We've got to embrace technology to, to be able to uh, satisfy our our food needs, and so that is the big backdrop that is is probably most relevant to um, biotech and biotech development. Within that, I would say that you know in the U.S. Um, and, and in particular in the U.S., we have a um, you know a more um, open um, you know mind to these new technologies. And um, embracing them provided that, you know, there's good data to do so. But with CRISPR and uh, Talens and even our tilling technology, the ability to use advanced breeding to rapid prototype uh, innovation has, has never been better. Um, and I think that, you know, as, as a biotech company that is um, – I think in a, in a leading position with regard to bringing some of these new innovations to market, we have, you know, high expectations that as consumers continue to um, demand um, more nutritious and um, clean sources of food, that these advanced technologies are going to continue to help us to satisfy that that demand and and. Um, as I said early on, uh, that what we've done with wheat is is truly phenomenal. To take um, a normal serving of pasta that has two grams of protein, or sorry, two grams of fiber, and be able to deliver that same serving with uh, nine grams of fiber uh, without any exogenous ingredients, doing that intrinsic to the wheat, that's a perfect example of uh, a non-GM technology bringing innovation to the market in a time frame that is, you know, one fifteenth of what it was historically. So Matt, I'm very curious about your, your role as CEO. Arcadia is a publicly traded company uh, since 2015. You became a CFO in 2016. Now you're a CEO. Oh, what kind of challenges are you, are you facing as a CEO of a public company? I'm just, I'm very fascinated about this. You know, what I, I'm sure there are some things that make your work very exciting, some things that make it very stressful. I mean, including just navigating 2020 and, and how uh, it, it went wrong for so many companies. You know, 
how have you navigated uh, being CEO and and you think your experiences have been common to your industry peers? It, it is more challenging to innovate uh, in emerging market or with emerging technologies as a public company than it is a private company because you are, as is um, Arcadia's current situation is, you know, the company is um, on the cusp of becoming profitable, but has not been. And so we are wholly beholden to our shareholders from whom we've raised the capital to launch and, um, you know, initiate these, these growth plans. And so you develop a strategy and a plan, you obtain your board's blessing, you know, and the board's responsibility is to, is, is, is basically oversight for shareholders. So you make sure that you met your fiduciary duty to have developed a solid and credible plan for value creation. Um, you go off to execute and in, in this kind of an environment, especially when you have COVID and, and those kinds of headwinds, adapting to those changes and keeping your shareholders informed um, as a publicly co- uh, traded company is a tremendous challenge in and of itself because you have to comply with disclosure laws, which are very, very specific. You know, although you'd like to bring everybody into the fold and just, you know, have town hall meetings every day to keep them up to speed on all the things that are evolving, it's not quite that simple. Private companies have the luxury of being able to pivot without, you know, a pretty comprehensive communication cascade that follows that. We have that communication cascade um, that takes bandwidth and time. So the, it's, it's just kind of the flip, it's, it's the two sides to the public company coin um, where, you, you know, public company gives you as, you know, gives you liquidity in ways that you don't have as a private company, but there is a, a follow through, um, you know, accountability and, and um, communication real time that has to go along with that public company. And so it is something that I have been doing the last 20 years and it is an, a more art than science. Uh, there's a lot of science, you know, the, the SEC has very specific rules, but, you know, building relationships with shareholders, developing and maintaining that credibility by being front and center and, and being accountable to your wins and your losses. I think that's a much more significant dimension in a public company than it is in a private company. And so, um, in years like this, where you have a lot of headwinds, when you have a market that was expected to be a $16 billion market, that's really only become a $2 billion market. That's an awful lot of change in the, the market that you have to adapt to as a company to stay on track for you know, the value creation that you've promised your stakeholders. Matt, this has been a, a fascinating conversation and we, we, we could certainly continue talking for, for much longer. And, and as a matter of fact, there are questions that due to, to time limitations will, will have to remain unanswered for now, but we do hope to have you back uh, b- before too long. Before we let you go, I'd like to ask you for any recommendations that, that you might have for, for us and our listeners. Well, you know, as a CEO of a public company, I will tell you, especially a, a small, um, nimble company, it's it's all consuming, um, and that's that's part of the the joy of of, of doing this. Um, but it doesn't leave you a lot of time, the time you would like to to be the student of life. But I will say that um, one of the uh, one of the books or authors that I have found to be very influential for me, and I'm not a big, you know 
business book guy. I don't, you know, have a lot of recommendations, but one that, that, uh, I found very useful some time ago and I've used it a fair amount, uh, and have done so recently as I've rebuilt the team at, at Arcadia is, um, uh, Patrick Lencioni has written a number of books, uh, um, around, um, corporate leadership and high performing teams. And, um, the one I can think of that, that, is, has been most influential is called the uh, five dysfunctions of a management team. Um, and it is a fable, but it is really a, 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 a great read. It's a quick read. And it's, and it's, it's, uh, basically the, um, a fictional, um, company in the Bay area that has the best management team, the best product, but they're third in the market and a new CEO comes in to address that issue. And the whole book is about the staff meetings that they have every week and how the CEO um, assesses the team's strengths and weaknesses and, and how she goes about fixing things. And I tell you, you read it and you will say, I know someone's just like that. I know someone who's just like that. Oh, and that's me. And it really helps to build what he calls first team loyalty and, um, you know, uh, the ability to be a cohesive and high performing team. And, and he's got, um, the five temptations of a CEO. So there's a few of them that he's written and I'm sure people listening know probably not a lot more about his work than I do, but that's one for me that, that was a, an entertaining read and very, um, very informative and instructional. And it's, it's served me really well over the years. I picked something very much on point this week. Um, it's uh, an article that was put out by New Frontier Data on their Cannabite series, and it's called Africa's Promising Untapped Potential for Hemp Production. So it's a series of charts, mostly uh, infographics with uh, you know, well-researched information about Africa's growing consumer market, which is going to increase by 2 billion people in the next 30 years. And then uh, discussed, uh, it was focused on on hemp, of course, and, and uh uh, you know, wh- which countries are going to be looking at a medical market, uh, you know, either domestic or international medical market, you know, to and from those markets and uh, focusing mostly on hemp. Um, you know, and, and Fred and I have had conversations lately with entrepreneurs from several African countries um, who have been interested in converting coffee crops, for instance, to hemp, uh, learning how to maximize crop yield, looking for funding, looking for technology. And uh, interesting here for those who are uh, want more information. Uh, at this point, there are seven African countries uh, who have, to one degree of another, uh, legalized cannabis since 2017. So those are Lesotho, South Africa, Eswatini, Rwanda, Zimbabwe, Uganda, and Malawi. And so uh, very interesting to kind of get a global, uh, you know, bird's eye view of what's going on in Africa and how it's growing. And I think our, our work and our inquiries over the last six to 12 months have really shown that there's a lot of interest, both from inside the continent and from others looking to access the continent. So a um, good article to check out if you're interested. Fred, what do you have for us? Um, I, I'm a, a podcast listener, an avid podcast listener, as well as a, a podcaster of sorts. And one of my favorite podcasts is Making Sense by Sam Harris. Um, I, I find that the the man just has an incredible talent to distill complex issues in a, in a way that that makes sense. Um, yeah, um, so I think it's a very fitting title uh, for, for what he does. Um, but his most recent episode, number 230 to be exact, is titled 
an insurrection of lies. And, and he just does a, an excellent job of, of analyzing what happened at the Capitol on January the 6th. So I would urge everyone to, to listen. I, I think that there is a perspective that he brings that is, I don't want to say unique, but, but definitely not perhaps the, the most uh, mainstream of perspectives. But I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, this particular episode, even though, of course, the topic is, is far from enjoyable. Uh, just more generally, I'd recommend the, uh, the Making Sense podcast. I'm pretty sure that I've recommended other episodes in the past, uh, but this one, this one definitely is worth listening to. So again, An Insurrection of Lies by Sam Harris. And with that, Matt, I'd like to thank you once again for, for being our guest. Thank you for your recommendation as well. Gentlemen, it was my pleasure. And I look forward to perhaps doing this again you know, sometime in the future. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams. Music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.